Thank you, Wendell. Well, we're really in for a treat tonight. Uh, you know, I enjoyed Walt last night. I could identify with him right off the bat. It really touched me. And Kay this morning really touched me in a lot of places. This language of the heart is really something. Uh, Bill, I feel like I've known him for years. I really got to meet him today. Uh, but in my early AA years, a friend of mine uh, that I had met asked me one night, he says, well, do you listen to tapes? You know, and I thought, oh, yeah, B.B. King, you know, Aerosmith, yeah. Oh, yeah, like for years, you know. He said, well, bring me some blanks. So I brought him some blank tapes, and he brought me some tapes back. And, uh, and one of them was, was Father Martin tape, and one was Clancy, and one was Bill Cruz. And I like to wore the tape out. <laughs> and that's been several years ago. And uh, so I was just thrilled uh, to get to know him and, and love him more and know him in person. So uh, I know we're in for a treat tonight. So let's welcome Bill. Thank you, David. I'm Billford, and I'm an alcoholic. Yes, I've got two names. You know, of uh, people now to get, in AA, they've got one name. kind of like Prince or Cher, Madonna or something, you know. And I just hadn't gotten trendy yet. I, I'm not going to preach about that, but I'm kind of sorry that we've quit using our full names. And I, I hope if you're an old hand like me and you're still saying your full name, you'll keep it up. I need to, uh, and that's the end of that sermon, I need to thank, too, the committee. That's the committee, I think, sitting over here, for letting, uh, for asking Kay and I to come down here and share at the Pine Mountain Fellowship. It's a, this is a beautiful place. I have never been at a, a more a, a impressive uh, location, I don't think, anywhere in my life. And, of course, this is a, it's a nice conference. And we've met some mighty good new friends and have had a good time. We've had a good time with your other speakers. We're sort of uh, sweet mates with Walt and his running mate, Jim. Of course, Walt can't remember Jim's name, keeps calling him John. He's kind of... <laughs> He said you only known him 12 years. It makes you feel good if your sponsor can't remember your name. It kind of keeps your ego in check. And we've just been delighted with uh, Kelly and David and, of course, uh, uh, Sandy and Wendell have just been a treat. So, and other folks, too, just has enjoyed the people here so much and have enjoyed this conference and almost makes me wish I had a decent talk here on Saturday night. Uh so many of you, a couple of you have mentioned listening to this tape, and I, you know, I'm trying to think of little changes in there, and I could maybe tell a little bit of David's story or something to make it a little, inject a little something different, but basically all I have is what you've heard before, except I hope how I am today has changed, that adjustments go on, growth goes on, setbacks go on in, in our sobriety, and I hope that'll come through a little bit. I was born in a home with a dual problem. We had alcoholism and Southern baptism right there in the same place. And both of those things you never get over. You know, once, uh, once you're one, you're always one. If you've got alcoholism, you never fully recover. And, you, you know, once a Southern Baptist, always a Southern Baptist. You know, my, my boss is an Episcopal priest. Yeah. And I tell you, but he was raised a Southern Baptist and become a priest. I'm saying, I don't care what you call yourself, you're still a Southern Baptist. Yeah. 
But I came up knowing like a lot of us, I know a lot of us come up in homes where there's alcoholism, where we have alcoholic parentage. And I used to think that it was unusual or at least sicker than most that someone who came up under the horrors and embarrassment and insecurity of active alcoholism that would begin to drink. But I think more than half of us are that way. And I don't know what the explanation for that is, but I knew I would never drink. I knew that what I experienced in my home with my daddy's drinking, and really I, I need to say this before going any further, my daddy was pretty good drunk. He was a pretty gentle drunk. He was a well-loved man, and really he was just, a, other than the fact he embarrassed us and would lie down in the wrong places or this kind of thing, he was pretty good drunk. He was never the mean, unpredictable, ugly drunk that I later came to be. But I, I know now, as I said, that it's not really unique or unusual even for that to happen. But I knew that I'd never drink. I knew that I would never do that. But I was having trouble right from an early age. We hear a lot of alcoholics say this, so I know this is not different either. But I was having trouble at a very early age fitting in and getting along and adjusting to the system. You know, we're having a little trouble with a grandson now, and it looks like it's going to be all right, but uh, he was not fitting in and acting right and doing right in, in school or kindergarten, I think is his grade level now. And I can remember how I was. You know what they do now when a kid's kind of like I was? They give them drugs. Uh, they give them speed. I missed the speed deal. Um uh, when I was bad in school, nobody offered me any hits of speed. Uh, they'd hit me, and they'd send me out there in the hall. Now, I kid sometime about that, and it's about sort of half true. I, I, I tell my children I'd have never learned to read if people hadn't put in graffiti out there in the hall, because that's where I stood, because I couldn't keep my mouth shut and couldn't act right in the class. Now, I didn't do that really on purpose. I determined that I was going to be better tomorrow and do my homework and sit still and all this kind of thing, and that never happened. And so, uh, you know, that part in the big book that write, Bill writes as a symptom of the progression of alcoholism where he says, we sought lower companionship. I was doing that in the second grade. I was... I was trying to find somebody that, whose behavior made my, made my behavior seem okay. And I, as I got older and got into, uh, drifted into the crowd where that was not fitting into the system too good, that's where I learned to smoke and, and do those things that, that we do. Uh, peer pressure, they call it. And that thing that peer pressure is that thing that makes us do things to be included in a group uh, that we want to be included, usually things that we shouldn't be doing. Now, it's kind of a big deal to learn how to inhale a lucky strike. Now, with the young people now, they're not too impressed because what they put in their lungs now, I mean, a lucky strike doesn't hold a candle to, but I can remember practicing with a lucky, trying to get a big wad down without my knees buckling so that when I was with the group, I could inhale. And I became a pretty good inhaler. I, uh, since it's kind of a different group, I'll talk a little bit about this, and I promise I won't stay here long, but uh, there was a period there I became a cat. Uh, now you young people don't know what a cat is. Uh, old Walt knows what a cat is, I guarantee you that. 
Uh, that's when you put grease in your hair and you comb it back. We make a DA haircut, square it off in the back, and turn your shirt collar straight up. We'd wear draped breeches, and for young people, draped breeches meant pants that were tapered down, had big knees and tapered down to a small cuff and wear them real low. And during a period in my teens there, when I wanted to be a rebel and I wasn't fitting in with the, the well-adjusted did, I became a cat. And I can remember working on that cat thing and getting advice on how to be a cat and having trouble with my hair because it was real fine. <laughs> and I couldn't get it all laid back like I want to. And that's back when they had stuff like wild root cream oil and stuff like that. And, and I'd put enough of that on that in my head that it looked like I'd have some condition where pus was coming out because that was, <laughs> was kind of white, uh, sort of milky looking stuff. And I can remember uh, one of my advisors told me about pomade. Uh, and that would keep your hair in place. And I laugh nowadays where they have like the final net commercial where they, they got the gal that has a hectic day and the end of the day she's pooped but her hair's still in place. And final net people just tickle to death with that. Pomade holds your hair for three months. Uh, <laughs> Every how you combed it's how it stayed. I kid and say if a train hits you and they could find your head, that hair would be in place. <laughs> well, that didn't have anything to do with anything other than I hadn't talked to this group before and you've never heard that. And, uh, except that it put me in an element, in a group, where the use of beverage alcohol was going on. Now back then, although I had heard of other substances, other chemicals, other drugs, uh, I never had any first-hand experience, certainly not then. We used alcohol. Now, I had fear and guilt associated with the use of alcohol from what I told you because of my religious training but because of what I lived with and witnessed in my home. But I began to drink simply because of that thing I said earlier, that thing called peer pressure. I wanted to be like them, with them, included among them. And I had me a little social drinking period there, I reckon. It was about... Best I can figure, six or seven weeks, I was a social drinker. Every level along, it took me from the time I first tasted something and drank a sip of this and a half a can of that till I got enough in me one night to feel intoxication. And that ended anything that would be like social drinking. That ended anything like drinking with impunity, as Bill Wilson says. Now, the experts... And the experts know right much about us. We laugh about all these scientists and doctors and everything, but they're out there sober studying us, and they probably got a pretty good, pretty good fix, a pretty good handle on this disorder. And the experts say, and, I, and somebody contradicted this just recently, but I'm going to stick with the figures I've heard. The experts have said that about one in ten people who experiment with alcohol gets from that drug, alcohol, something that causes them to develop what we call alcoholism. One in ten gets something special from the use of this particular drug that later causes them to addict to it. Or the way I like to put it, nine in ten waste every drop they drink. <laughs> and we know them, you know, we marry them, go to work for them, they outnumber us, there's nine of them for every one of us. And so I was the one in ten, apparently. Because right from the beginning, and we've heard this talked about already, we've all talked about this. Right from the very beginning, there was something special done for me. 
It was like something incomplete, a hole there, something missing, whatever, that this filled up, that this completed. This was like something I had needed all my life, and I was 15 and a half years old and finally discovered. Now, I'm not over-dramatizing. You know that. I'm not waxing poetic up here. This is the truth with folks of our class, the alcoholics. And so right then, I was half an alcoholic, I guess. If an alcoholic is, as our big book defines it, is a, is a person with a mental obsession and a physical allergy, then certainly the mental obsession was there then, didn't know it. I assumed what it did for me, it did for everybody. I can remember who I was drinking with that night. I can remember where we were. We had the old downtown cemetery there in Greensboro, North Carolina. I can remember I was with Charlie and I was with Sonny. Let me tell you something interesting about this disease. Sonny's still alive. Charlie's dead. These are two boys about my age. We sat on tombstones that night and drank old Mr. Mac wine, cheap wine, and felt intoxication. Let me tell you something about those three boys. Two of us caught it, one didn't. Two of us became alcoholic, one never could. We all three drank from then on and raised hell and went to places where drinking was going on and partied and did the things. And Charlie caught it just like me. And about eight years ago, a doctor told Charlie, if you take another drink, you're going to die because your liver is so cirrhotic. It's so diseased that you can tolerate no more alcohol, and alcohol becomes poison, and you're going to die. And Charlie drank again, and he died just like the doctor promised. And here I stand, recovered, fully clothed, and in my right mind, and all those things that we call ourselves when we're an alcoholic in this program. And not and incapable of being grateful enough. Sonny uh, ran with us too and drank and raised hell and went to places where drinking was going to be done and did all the things that we did. And he couldn't catch it. Now Sonny and I just lived a block apart. Both of his parents were alcoholic and it was a sick and, and ugly thing in his house. When he was 15 years old he had to go down to uh, the courthouse and be and witness and testify in the trial where his father was being tried for murdering his mother because in one drink one drunken sick particular evening that that home she was killed and he couldn't catch it now Sonny's still alive but Sonny has to be heavily medicated and every once in a while he has uh, psychotic breaks and he has to be hospitalized and here I stand, recovered with you in this place of miracles, and I'm not capable of being grateful enough. So as life went on for me like it does, now if you get back far enough from an alcoholic, he or she looks about like a regular person will do that. Now if you're close, you can tell the difference right up first. But if you look back, we're sort of, as if we don't die or something, we'll get older. And I got out of high school and went to a little bit of college and then went in the Army. Made me a neuropsychiatric technician in the Army. I worked in a nut house for almost three years. Now, I was a type of, I was, I had that kind of ego, paranoia, Walt calls it, you know, where I, if I'd hear about something, I'd have it. You know, I'd go, I was a kid, go see a movie and somebody have some rare disease. I'd get the symptoms right there during the movie. My mom would have to take me to the doctor. 
Well, I, you know, I'd hear all these things, and, uh, you know, they, was training, they were training me, and I'd hear about schizophrenia and stuff like that, and I said, my God, I've got that. <laughs> well, it's a heck of a deal uh, to be working in a nut house. you got your white suit there and your keys and knowing you're a nut, too. <laughs> and I, I'd have that fear. I'd be standing there on the ward. I'm, you know, they're going to find out. I'm on... I'm going to fly apart, they're going to take a look at me, and they're going to put me in those blue, blue pajamas and take my keys. <laughs> well, uh, this is the interesting thing about alcohol and how it relates to the alcoholic that's different. And if you're thinking about going to get some education and studying up on addiction or alcoholism, let me give you a real quick education on it, as I understand. The difference between us and them. The difference between us, one in ten, and them, the nine in ten. Now, they've spent uh, lots and lots of money, and great gr brain power has been invested in researching us. They've killed a zillion rats, probably, you know, run them through those convulsions and this kind of thing. Because uh, to understand now, to my knowledge, they've never spent a dime studying them, the nine and ten. Uh, and yeah, we all know they're a lot more interesting than us. Well, i tell you what I've done. I've, I've sort of I've gone on my own and done my own little project without a grant. <laughs> my wife, who many of you heard talk this morning, is one of the worst cases of non-alcoholism you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> If you were looking for a classic non-alcoholic, she'd be it. Now, I'll tell you what she's done. Over the years, she'll drink a little bit. So if we, every, twice a year, we'll go out and have a very fancy meal at anniversary time or something, and she'll drink a glass of wine. And a few times over the years, she has ingested enough to feel it. You know what she does when she starts to feel it? She stops. <laughs> Now, that demands research. <laughs> it's, it's high time somebody looked into that. So. so I've taken it upon myself to sort of use her as my control group, and I've said, why do you do that? Why, when you get the pilot lit, do you stop? And she said, well, I tell you. When I start to feel it, I feel, now listen to this, I feel as if I'm losing control. And I don't like that feeling. So I stopped. When I would leave that nut board, afraid I was going to fly apart, lose it, be found out, and go up to the club that night and begin to drink, and the feeling would start to overcome me, it was the only semblance of control I had in the day. Ain't that interesting? Same drug, same type of central nervous system, same whatever that makes up us human beings. The very thing that makes her lose control was the only thing that gave me any kind of idea, any semblance, any feeling of control. Now, I don't need to know any more than that. They don't have to kill any more rats. They don't have to do any more research. All I have to know is there's some difference that we can't help. She can't help it. I can't help it. Now, the progression of alcoholism, and I'm going to be real quick on my drunk law because uh, if you're new, and I've spent some time with uh, some good new folks today, and I've really enjoyed Reba, and she's getting a toehold in this thing, and she's been in the program something less than two months. 
And if Reba is like most of us, she's feeling, you know, not act exactly like everybody, you know. You know, with a come on in, you're just like, oh, well, I'm damn fine like most of you. Yeah, I might, yeah. Well, after you've been around here for a while, you'll find out that we are a lot alike. In fact, we're so similar to me that it's almost uncanny. It's almost scary. That we have such a disease where the symptoms are in progression is sometimes so predictable that we're a lot alike. Now, some of us are rich and poor and smart and dumb and black and white and men and women and all kinds of those kind of difference, but the disease as it manifests itself, as it progresses, is real similar. And what happened to me, I suspect, is what happened to you. And sometimes we get real bogged down on how many families he lost and how many DWIs he had and how many times he went to jail and all that business. But what happened to me is why, what happened to you. First of all, what those amnesia spells, those things we call blackouts. Now, I had those when they first came out. I didn't, I didn't drink for a long time and get them. I had them as a, as a young fellow. You know how it is you don't know you're having them at first? You think you remember everything and somebody will give you a report to get you mixed up with somebody else? No, it wasn't me. And then they got a witness or something, and, and you know, well, I forgot that. Well, I, if I forgot that, then other people must forget. Not true. If you knew, let me give you another little piece of education. Non-alcoholics never, ever have blackouts. You want to do it? We just had that period of time that we just, that holiday period, where those non-alcoholics out there drinking. New Year's Eve, they're out there drinking. We're not the only ones that get drunk. They can get drunk. Oh, that's what they call it. Uh, <laughs> you know, here's these uh, dangerous times about that driving. Them non-alcoholics out there drinking. And so you, there's nothing more dangerous than a non-alcoholic with a bag on out in a car, I'm telling you. <laughs> he can be blowing about a .07, just be all over the road, you know. <laughs> Not us. Experience. We can be blowing 28. <laughs> Have one hand over eye going just as straight. <laughs> Might be going 16 miles an hour. But... <laughs> they don't have blackouts. If you want to experiment with one, go out with them on one on New Year's Eve and they'll just get, get them knee walk, get them comatose. They'll remember everything till the time they fell out. And I was having those blackout periods, those periods of amnesia where I was walking, talking, functioning, and didn't remember. That's alcoholism. I began to lose control over the amount I was drinking. That's alcoholism. Non-alcoholics never, ever lose control. From the first time they find out what it would do, they don't lose control. That's alcoholism. I went down, I'll tell a real brief story. I wor was working for an insurance company and they sent me down to oh, Equitable Life, as a matter of fact, and I was uh, in my mid-twenties. And they sent me down to uh, school in Atlanta, down around these parts, and I was supposed to be down there for a week. Well, I was down there for a week, but the first night out, some of us went out, went to strip joints and drank. We were away from home, and uh, I, I was the only one in the group that ended up in Atlanta drunk tying. I was the alcoholic. They weren't. At the end of that week, I almost got fired, didn't get fired. At the end of that week, a young man came who lived in Greenville, South Carolina, which is right on the way back to Greensboro, which I was returning, asked for a ride. 
and I said, if you'll help with the driving, you can ride back. And as we pull out of Atlanta, he was driving the car, and I reached under the seat and got that brown bag and took a drink. And he looked at me like they look at us because he knew I'd been in jail. He knew I was almost fired. He knew I had suffered humiliation, embarrassment, and everything. And he asked me something about it, and I said something macho. Yeah, like I really enjoy that. I, I really have a good time with this. And he told me a story I'll never forget. I know now why I don't, didn't forget it. I didn't know then why it meant so much to me. But he was a fellow about my age and similar background and similar in many ways, and he told me that when he was 18 years old and he pledged to fraternity in college, he got drunk and just did some awful things. Didn't sound so bad to me with my background, but he tore up a room or something, just went out of his head, and he would determine never drink again. And he said, I haven't had a drink since. Two young men, we were probably 25 years old, probably that was about our age. And as I said, we were so much alike. If you shook us up in a sack, you probably couldn't tell the difference. We came from southeastern United States. We were both young married men. I think we both had a couple of kids. Our backgrounds were so similar, you could almost not tell the difference. We were so much alike that both of us couldn't drink. He just told me, and when I drink, it's like firewater to me. I mean, I, I go crazy. And he described his inability to drink and handle alcohol. He knew from first-hand experience in what he had witnessed in my life that I couldn't drink. Neither one of us could handle alcohol. Neither one of us could drink. But the difference between us that separated us beyond any mutual understanding was that I could not drink. So I'd made that decision even by age 25 many times that he had made. I'd secretly said, I'll never do this again many, many times. But for the past seven years of his life, from 18 to 25, he had easily lived up to that pledge, and I couldn't. That's alcoholism. I lost control of my behavior. That's alcoholism. I began to act in ways, do things that not only humiliated me and others, it hurt me and others. And I began to see, you know what I did too? I got married. You know, you hurt her today. We're bad to get married. We won't leave people alone. That's why we got a family disease. You know, if we just go off in the woods somewhere and progress, we might wipe this disease off the face of her, but we don't do that. We married, have youngins and everything, mess up other lives. And by then, this was my situation. I came out of that army, that sick, unusual situation in the army, to come back to have a regular, normal life where everything would be okay and I was going to drink less. And he came back, and it got worse, and it got sicker. And my behavior got worse, and it got sicker. And I drove people further and further and further away from me. And the people who were still there and still cared would look at me and say, Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you hurting yourself? Why do we have this embarrassment and humiliation and uncertainty and insecurity? And that's when, you know, the lower companions come in. Don't we love those lower companions? Lower companions that Bill Wilson talks about, that's the people who are at the places where my behavior, my drinking looks acceptable. So I can run down to them. I can run down to Ham's or the Bamboo Lounge or the Varsity Grill or the Ivan House or one of these places, and they'll say, you're right, you know, you're okay, Crawford. I could tell them about her. They were on my side. Why don't you kill her? <laughs> Thank you.
And then I'd always have to come running back home with my tail between my legs because I was sick and there was no other place to go. I discovered the morning drink. We alcoholics like to say we discovered the morning drink like nobody thought of us before, <laughs> thought of it before us. But I found out that what my daddy had done worked. If I drank some in the morning because what I was doing is I was suffering the withdrawal that anybody that's addicted to any drug suffers. My drug was alcohol. Those hangovers that come to the true alcoholic when the physical allergy is truly manifest is where you look back fondly on those things you used to call hangovers. Those hangovers like those non-alcoholics have. They have them good hangovers. Remember those good hangovers? By golly, I woke up this morning and my head hurt a little bit and I had a thick tongue. I could barely eat my waffle. That's a hangover to those uh, uh, non-alcoholics. I'm talking about when they develop into the hangovers where you you come to and every fiber of your being hurts and everything is screaming for more of that stuff whether you know it or not and the fear and the shame comes and i would be the only person in the world what a selfish disease alcoholism is and all the trouble and everything because my drunks when i got into the morning drinking that went from morning drinking to bender drinking and I would come to at the end of those things and I begin to tell myself that lie over and over that we tell ourselves, I'm never going to do this again. I've learned my lesson this time because my drunks always had a little damage attached to them. I didn't have uneventful, nice little drunks. I had drunks where you, you went and picked up checks or you had her do it, you know, that's four Al-Anons. I had those drunks where you damage was done. I had drunks where you didn't answer the phone. You know those kind of drunks. Phone rang, you didn't answer. You definitely didn't go to any front doors or anything. That was that kind of deal. I had drunks where you hid and you couldn't hide from yourself. And I would tell myself that lie that I was trying to, to live by and trying to convince myself I'll never do this again. Now, I know this it was not a lie to other people, although I'd say it to other people. I know this was a lie to me, and I know that now when I have the privilege of calling on someone who's still suffering from the active throes of this disease, and they tell me that I've learned my lesson this time, I'll never do this again, I know he or she means that. But you see, I was an alcoholic, and I couldn't drink. And more importantly, I couldn't not drink. And so I would come out from under these deals and pick up checks and repair the damage and wait for the heat to blow over and this kind of thing, and then I tell myself that other lie. And it'd come out in all different kinds of ways. Sometime it'd be, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm only going to drink beer. I'm only going to drink at home. This time I'll mix drinks. Somehow that was always magic, to mix drinks. You never hear anybody in trouble on gin and tonics. Uh, mixed drinks. And then I'd begin to drink again. I'd begin to drink again, not for any mysterious reason. I began to drink again because I'm an alcoholic, and I must always at some point return to drinking. In the middle of summer of 1966, I'm 28 years old, and I'm working for a crooked company because that was all that was left to me, and I was up in St. Louis working for this company. I'd been up there for two weeks, and I'd been drunk for two weeks. And at the end of that two-week period, I flew back to Greensboro tapering off. And that's what I called it. It's what my daddy called it. I found out if you quit drinking abruptly uh, that it was bad. 
And so I found out, just like my daddy would say, I'm tapering off, and I would tell her, I'm not really drinking, I'm tapering off. You know, it looks alike. Drinking and tapering off looks alike. <laughs> and especially to wives and husbands and people like that. And I'd have to explain that to her over and over. I quit drinking yesterday. Today I'm tapering off. I'm, I'm sort of dosing myself down. If I'd have known the term detoxification, that's what I'd have said. I would say, I'm detoxifying that. But I'd have a little dosage problem from time to time, and I'd get drunk again tapering off. And so you have to start over. And so I'd be, I was in that state. And I was a fun drunk. Uh, drank a lot of money to wear. You know, we went to marriage counseling with the preacher there for one time. They, she and the preacher and Kay want to talk about my drinking all the time, and I want to talk about her lack of affection. Well, if you hadn't changed underwear in about a week, you don't eat, you're just drinking, you get a little gamey after a while, and romance goes out the window. Well, I was in that state, tapering off. And she had picked me up at the airport, and I was in the airport lounge there, dosing down some beer, and so got had her stop on the way to get more, and I'm standing there, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, as I, I, I mentioned, one of the things, I'd done all kinds of things. I'd gone to a psychiatrist when I was in the Army and talked with him at length about what I thought my problems were. As I said, we'd gone to counseling with the preacher. I'd done all kinds of things. I'd got me a book one time on yoga uh, because I had several testimonials on the, on the front cover, one of which said it, how a young man overcame his ba battle with the bottle, and, and I got that. Now, yoga probably would have worked, but I never could stand on my head and all that stuff because I was a drunk. Uh, that day, in the middle of July, sometime in July, Standing there in my underwear, tapering off, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it's an answering service, or it was at that time in Greensboro. This is 1966. A man by the name of Bill Norman, who was and is a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous up there, called me, returned that call from the answering service. And we talked a little bit, and I found out he was about as narrow-minded about tapering off as Kay was. <laughs> and so he didn't want to rush to my aid. But some things happened in that conversation. One of the things was that I asked him, how long have you been sober? And he said something like four years. is a colossal, astronomical amount of time to me. And I asked him, how did you do that? And he said, a man can do almost anything one day at a time. I remember that just as clear as a bell. And we talked for a while, and he said, I don't want to come out there while you're drinking. Tell me when I can come out when you're not drinking. And I said, we'll get back together. And I made some promises about when we could do that. And I hung up on the phone. So when she got home, I had the man's name and number. So before you open your, you know how you do. Now, all kinds of things I'd probably call to get the heat off. I don't know. But mostly, maybe I just needed that grandstand move to say I've called A and A. So shut up, you know. Hold that name and number out like that. Before you open your mouth, here's that name and number. I turned myself into AA. Now, he and I agree I'm not ready yet. <laughs> but when, when I am, let's call, I'm going to call him back. 
And so here's the name and the number in the drawer that she put. I'll tell you one thing, that name and number didn't lose because she found that anybody could help me or help us with what was going on in our house, she wasn't going to lose the contact information. And sometimes later, and she told you about it, some months later, when things were sick enough in our house, when she realized I was not going to call that number again, she did. She'd been doing things too, you know, how the spouse of the alcoholic will try to keep a secret for a while and hide things and cover up, and then they'll start reaching out for help, and then they'll just go anywhere. I was accusing her of just stopping people on the street and saying, I've got, you know, I got me a drunk at home. But she had, had reached out to some people, and she had done some things. She had gone to some people and some places and everything to seek help for what was happening in our home. In this day, so I've heard, or this evening when she called this number, she told a strange voice when she asked, is this Bill? Is this the Bill Norman? She told a strange voice on the phone what was happening in our home, and according to what I know now, she was talking to someone for the first time who not only understood, but who had a solution. Now, the solution was, as you heard this morning, If Lib is in Al-Anon, let me put her on the phone. In case started going to Al-Anon. Every Wednesday night. And some of you have heard my tape before. You know I like to say that if you're a, a drinking person and your loved one gets into Al-Anon, it probably won't cure your drinking. That ain't its purpose. But it'll break your rhythm, I'll guarantee you that. dear friend of mine who we buried a few years ago, Rooney Catesley, said it better than anybody ever that I've ever heard. He said when all this failed, he could play dead in the living room floor. And his wife, Ruby, would come over and say, are you alive? And even the kids would kind of get shook up. And he said, Ruby, joined Alan on, she could vacuum around him. <laughs> all that means is somebody started getting well in the house. And all that needs to happen a lot of times is someone needs to start getting well. Somebody needs to start being free of the power of alcoholism. That's all that happened to her. Just a little bit at a time, an inch at a time, the power of my disease began to lose its power over her. So I credit Al-Anon as much as anything in the world with my coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, with my at least getting to the doorway. On June the 2nd of 1967, I'm sitting there coming off a drunk. Another one. Well, the 50th drunk, the 100th drunk, the 200th drunk, the same set of scenes. I can't think that this drunk was any worse than the 20 before or the 50 before. I was just, I was in that good place for alcoholics. I was in that place that we need to be to be a candidate for this program. I was out of schemes and plans. My bag of tricks was empty. I was out of lies, I was out of dodges, and I was out of delay tactics and all those things that we use to survive in the throes of active alcoholism. She looked at me and she said, can we call Bill? And I knew who Bill was. And she dialed the phone. And she was in Al-Anon and knew I was supposed to be doing things for myself. But that's back when you had the holes in the phone. That's for the punch. And she knew in my condition I couldn't get my finger in there seven times. So she ran around for me and handed me the phone and Bill said, and I remember this clearly too, are you about ready to throw in the towel now? And I was out of schemes and plans. 
and I was out of delay tactics, and I was out of lies. And I said, I sure am, because I sure was. And this was a fairly late hour on a Friday night, and he said, I'll come see you in the morning. And as sure as his word, that Saturday morning, June the 3rd, 1967, Bill came to my house. And he came in and sat in the Big Shots living room. And I'm sitting in a little house with the payments of $100 a month, and I can't make them, and Cameron Brown is going to sell it on the courthouse steps. And he's as generous with himself and information about himself and attention to me as we are when we're calling on that new drunk, or I hope we still are. And he did the things he should do. And he had the attitude that he should have, but more important than that, he asked me to promise to not drink for the rest of that day and go with him to Alcoholics Anonymous that night. And I was out of delay tactics. And I didn't have any more dodges in, in me. And so I agreed to do that. I might have thought I'd get out of it later because I was pretty sick. But she had heard the deal, you know, she was listening there at the door. Now, I took my own car. I remember that. I had some pride. He wanted to pick me up, and I oh, I might not like that, I thought to myself, so I'll take my own car. I'll meet you there. And so we did. Let me tell you about that first meeting. First meetings, you know, miracles happen here. Miracles are going on here. It's not just a place for us that can't drink anymore to hang out. Miracles happen here. I got into that room as rum-dum as you can be. I was sober one day. I was in bad shape. And I walked in. It was a little meeting back then. It wasn't so little, comparatively speaking, but 18 or 20 people at an open speaker meeting. I was about average then, maybe a little bigger than average. I don't know. But I got in there and sat down among those people and thought everybody was looking at me. You know how that alcoholic ego is, a center of attention. Figured everybody was wondering why I was there. <laughs> now I know alcoholics ain't paying any attention to anybody but themselves, whether they're sober or drunk. You can walk into AA with two heads. Nobody, everybody's checking themselves out. Nobody looks. But then I thought I was the center of the universe, and I had that feeling. Everybody was wondering about me. And I listened to the reading that didn't mean anything to me. And if you're brand new and this reading didn't mean anything to you tonight, I know what you're talking about. And somebody, to some applause, got up and did what I'm doing tonight. Told his story. Now, a lot of miracles had happened to me, of course, to get me in that seat that night, of course. And I don't discount that, but I'm just going to talk about two singular miracles that happened right there that night. And that can happen for you if you're sitting here new. They can happen to you if you're sitting here old and you don't feel this thing yet and you're not part of it yet. Number one, uh, I understood this old boy's message. Now, my attention span wasn't too good. Been sober one day. But I understood that he was telling us that was sitting there in front of him that he had drunk alcohol hopelessly and that he'd come here and he wasn't drinking, and life was good. It took him 50 minutes to tell it, like all of us do, but I understood that's what the bottom line. Miracle number two, and the hook, I guess, that saved my life was I believed him. I believed every word he said. And I hadn't believed anybody or anything in a long time. I didn't even believe in God. And here's an old boy that had no reason to have any credibility with me, and I believed him. 
I was hooked on Alcoholics Anonymous that night without knowing it, just like I was hooked on that cheap wine 14 years before that. Now, I didn't have a... I went into the other room because at that time the Star Mountain group there in Greensboro met in the plush ladies' study and we had to move into another room more like this one, a larger room, where those members of Alcoholics Anonymous drank their coffee and ate their cake. An amazing thing for a new drunk. So I had just been kicked out for life from the Bamboo Lounge. I could no longer go back. I couldn't go back to the Varsity Grill, but my most recent kick out was the Bamboo Lounge. I don't need to describe the Bamboo Lounge to you. You can tell by the name that it should have had a sign, Lower Companions Only. And even the Lower Companions couldn't tolerate my behavior anymore. And here I'm standing with decent, clean people whose clothes matched. And they're standing there drinking coffee. And they'd offer me coffee. And that's how you tell a newcomer. You throw that coffee. You want some coffee? And the guy and I go, no, no. Well, there's a new man. You know, coffee made me nervous. Want some cake? You know, I hadn't had, uh, I hadn't had cake in years. <laughs> I thought I'd outgrown my taste for sweets. Now I know I kept my blood sugar jacked up so high I couldn't stand to be in the same room with a pie. But at that time, I, I just thought it was a phase of growing up. Want some cake? Boy, they could eat cake and drink that coffee. Recovered alcoholics can do it. AA members can do it. And they're spitting cake crumbs out and slopping coffee down, whopping each other on the back and having the best time you've ever seen in your life. And I knew without any kind of real deductive powers that those people were better off than me. Those people were better off than the people down at the Bamboo Lounge. Those people presented something, had something in their eyes, they were made up of something different and better than where I'd been. Now, I knew drinking, I knew enough sanity was in place or enough desperation was in place or something, I knew that drinking was killing me. And I knew in some ways without knowing the words that I was powerless or I was hopeless. And I knew there was hope in that room. I didn't know, I didn't have those words in my head, but I know now that in retrospect I knew that. And like I say, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous a lot. I, yeah, I work with alcoholics now, they're new in the, for a living, I mean. I have a little follow-up program with a company I work for. I work with people new in the program, and I laugh, I kid them sometimes, because they've got to schedule Alcoholics Anonymous around their other deals, you know. Well, I say, I've got soccer practice there on this night, and they'll schedule AA in. And I tell them about my introduction to AA. My nights were free. <laughs> when you've been kicked out for life from the Bamboo Lounge, you don't have to run to your calendar to check if you can come to AA on a Monday night. My days were free. I, uh, I didn't have a job at the time, and so I was, she would deliver me down at the club down on Green Street, and I would sit there all day at the AA club where it was safe. And the people would come in and out and share themselves with me. And I'd go to Alcoholics Anonymous that night, and recovery started. That was a long time ago. That was 30-plus years ago. And what an empty vessel I was, how needy I was, how ready I was. You know, you're going to find out if you need a review, you're going to find this out. 
that I can remember a talk I heard 30 years ago in more detail than one I heard the night before last because I sucked it up like somebody, a hungry man that hadn't eaten in days, so he would do food. And we got in with these people, and back then, and I'm not going to complain about Alcoholics Anonymous now, because in many ways, Alcoholics Anonymous now is much better than it was then, please believe me. Some of the things will will bother me a little bit, but back then, at least the fellowship, and and, and sticking with the winners. The winners stuck with me, and they included me, and we went up and down the road. Back then, my old sponsor, the sponsor I ended up with, did a lot of 12-step work. We'd go call on drunk. Wet drunks, all kinds of places, at all kinds of hours, too. And we'd do anything. We'd go anywhere under any circumstances. I, at least he would, and he'd take me with him. And I started getting better, coming to believe. I can remember when Bill, the guy that brought me there, he said, I want you to go to all these meetings, but don't go to the Sunday night discussion meeting. There was only one meeting at that time in Greensboro, and it was the Sunday night discussion meeting. There are two screwballs there that will confuse you. Don't go. I couldn't wait to Sunday night to get up that Sunday night discussion meeting and I got up there and, and I could talk about my agnosticism. Turned it from a two screwball meeting into a three screwball <laughs> And I laugh at it now because I can see the other people kind of drifting away. It got down to about just me and those other two screwballs there for a while. But great things happened to me because I began to get somebody call me aside. You know, people don't argue about God in AA. Isn't that wonderful? They will bounce a bamboo lamp. You can get a good one. You can get a fist fight going on. There. I don't believe in God. You know, somebody said, my mama believes in God. They'll bust you one or something. You didn't get something started. There. They won't do that in AA. Somebody was kind enough to pull me off the side and said, I'll tell you what you do. Why don't you get up in the morning and you ask for this day without a drink? If that works, whether you think it's coincidence or otherwise, you say thank you. Don't you love that first paragraph in chapter 4, the one to agnostics? I read that chapter a hundred times. And I like the 44 questions and all other kinds of tests we have to try to determine whether we're really alcoholic or not. But the best one I've ever seen is right there in those last two sentences of the first paragraph of chapter 4. It makes it real simple. It says, if when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely. Of when drinking, you have little control over the amounts you take. And this is where Bill gets kind of polite. You're probably alcoholic. <laughs> like you got webbed feet and waddled with a bill, you're probably a duck. You're probably an alcoholic. Then he says, the next sentence, if that be the case, you're suffering from a condition that only a spiritual experience can conquer. Not among other things, not one of the ways, not the best ways, but only way. The only way to recover from this hopeless, fatal, deadly malady is a spiritual experience. That's pretty plain. That's inarguable. And so I would read that over and over. And I would find myself saying those prayers. Not out loud. I don't want my old buddies to find out I was praying. But I'd sneak one. God keep you sober today. That night. Thank you. And I walked up to the front of an AA meeting one night and picked up a red chip for three months of sobriety. I'd never come close to that. I knew something was working in my life. And I didn't care what I believed it was then. I just knew something beyond me was working. And prayers came easier. 
and I worked steps, and I found out that I wasn't only just upset sometimes and confused sometimes. I was mad as hell all the time, and I was angry as hell all the time, and I was scared to death all the time. That's what the inventory told me. And the manageability of life began to return to my life when I believed in God and I began to know what the things, that the manifestations of self that was the cancer that was killing me and started doing the things that emptied self from me. Now, if you're wondering, you know, the mystery of Alcoholics Anonymous, why does it work? Why does this moral psychology, as Dr. Silkworth called it, work when other therapies have failed? With the alcoholic, it's no great mystery. Now, when you're new, your sponsor's going to say, just like they tell me, just like I tell people, why should I do an inventory? Shut up and do it. You know, you don't have to. You'll know after you've done it. And that's what I did. I said, why, why, why? Just do it. Then you'll know. Now I know when I look back, what happened from steps four through nine was just I emptied self. That they just take self. And as I empty self, God comes in. As an inch of self goes out, God fills the vacuum. The emptier I am of self, the fuller I am of God. Reading great books, going off the mountaintops, sitting in a preacher's lap or whatever doesn't bring God to me. As self leaves, he comes in. And I was running up and down the road with sponsored. I was doing what I was supposed to do and, and good things. And we were talking earlier yesterday, and I was talking about, I've been fired in alcoholics now. I was doing a great job in AI. I was poster child for AA. And my boss calls me and fires me. He didn't ask, are you making coffee for your home group or anything? He just fired me because I wasn't doing anything for him. It's that kind of guy. <laughs> and I knew soon after that, I should have left that job a long time ago. He should have fired me a long time ago. That this was something that got, that I was able to let go of through the power of the program and it was taken from me to let other good things come in. That's the way it's always been for me and those that I've been close to in this program. Everything that seems like a tragedy, a loss, scary, this is it, I'm going under this time, I'm going to fly apart this time, I'll never get through this, is always that thing that sets us up for something good. It's always that bottom where we're letting go of something. That bottom where we're dropped into something else. Freeing ourselves or letting God free ourselves of something else so something good can replace it. We've, over the years, my kids were five and six when I came in. Now it's, they're middle-aged. They're 35 and 36. We raised them in AA. I mentioned to somebody today at lunch they were talking about raising kids. I said, if you're going to have teenagers, you better have some kind of program. If it ain't AA or Al-Anon, get, shoot yourself or get some sort of program. <laughs> and AA and Al-Anon's a good place to, and you heard some of that that, that Kay talked about today. You want to know when, if you keep doing this thing, what will happen? If you keep doing this, you know, if your sponsor's like all the rest of the sponsors, they're going to tell you the same thing. You're going to go through them from everything from hangnail to, to losing your family, and they're going to tell you the same thing. Well, you know, double up on your meetings and pray more and inventory that situation and help more drunks. And I want to, you know, I don't want to help drunks. I need more money. I don't want to make coffee for my home group. I need to get her straightened out. And it was always the same solution. You want to know what will happen if you just keep doing those silly things your sponsor tells you to do. Just keep putting your butt in chairs like this. Keep bending those knees and praying those prayers. Keep working those steps. Keep helping others when you think you need help more than others. Let me tell you what will happen. You're going to be sitting someplace with somebody who's probably hurting worse than you. And a feeling like you never have is going to overcome you. 
And you're going to wonder what it is if you ain't like me. And you're going to look back on it and you're going to realize that just for a couple of seconds you cared more about somebody else than you did yourself. That's the miracle of this brother. I can remember when that first happened. Where I actually for just a brief time cared more about someone else than I did me. Now I didn't get selfish when I started drinking. I got selfish when I started thinking. I got selfish from my earliest memory. That's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that's good in my life, everything of value, everything worth your knowing about. Anything about me that would help somebody else is directly attributable to this program. There is nothing else. I had a lot of good things in my life. But they all came from Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a good job. I don't mean I'm getting rich, but it's a job that fits me good and they treat me good and they respect me. But that job is is alone to me because of you and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a family that loves and respects me and it's reciprocated. A wonderful family. And sometimes we'll, Kay and I will just sort of sit and be awestruck at just how wonderful and good they've come out. I don't mean that they've become brain surgeons. I don't mean that. I mean, but they're, they're good people. But they're there in my life and part of me because of this. I go to church now. I'm not the greatest church member in the world, but I clean up good and put money in plate, go to Sunday school. But I can be a decent church member because of you and because of this. So if you don't see me in a while and, and, and you do happen to run across me and you say, where have you been? And I say, well, I'm spending more time with my family or I'm devoting more time to my business or I'm now in my church now and that's where I'm finding and I hope you'll grab me and take me to a meeting. Because anything that happens in my life that's good, the seed was here. It came from here. To be asked to come and share with you, there's no way you can get here from there. Thank you. Told you that was going to really be something. It was. Uh, I see one of these Chuck back there. Where are you, Chuck? Did he leave us? Chuck's here. Today's his birthday. 18 years. Is he outside? Give him a hand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, when you see him, tell him uh, we were going to recognize him, but uh, he wasn't here. <laughs> Like me, you know, when they...